this morning I want to share on the subject of eternal security, the end of all dispute. One of the questions that I'm asked very often, especially in the context of grace, is do you believe in eternal security of the believers? Do you believe once saved, always saved? Um, many of you know my response to that. I usually say, I prefer to say once a son, always a son. You can be born again, but you can't be unborn. When you're born, you're born. I can be a prodigal son, I can be a wayward son, I can be a rebellious son, but I'm still a son. Amen. Once born, once a son, always a son. But often people ask this question, and there's two groups of people that ask the question. First of all, there are those that like to argue about it. You know, they want to get into an argument about this. Do you believe once saved, always saved? Why do you believe that? Then when you get your verse ready to say, because the Bible says this, they see it like a missile coming over and they shoot it down with their verse. And this sort of conflict goes on. Personally, I'm not interested in that kind of thing. This, this subject is too precious, too important to get into some theological debate about it. But the second group of people that ask this question are often people who are very anxious. They become anxious because they think maybe they've lost their salvation. Maybe they would stand before the Lord in that day and hear the words, depart from me. I never knew you. And verses like that are thrown at them and, and, and it just puts them into a state of turmoil. They lose their peace of mind. They're fearful in their heart. Some of them almost have a breakdown. I'm not exaggerating. I have spoken to people who have actually had a breakdown because they've feared so much that they've lost God and God has cast them away because they've not lived as they, they, they should have lived or something like that. Uh, even just two weeks ago, somebody phoned me and ordered a book and, and said, you know what, your ministry saved my life. That's the very word, save my life. People are almost suicidal over this thing. It can play such games with their mind that they almost snap and lose it altogether. I've counseled people like that. I'm not exaggerating. And so I want to look at that subject this morning. And, I, and I, that's why I've called it eternal security, the end of all dispute. My prayer is that when you've listened to this message, you will never even have to discuss this with anyone ever again because it will be settled once and for all now when people argue against eternal security you know the book they go to most of all in the bible is the book of hebrews and there are two chapters in particular chapter 10 and chapter 6 that people go to to say see the bible says this so it's very clear you can lose your salvation in fact this week somebody um, asked me about Hebrews chapter 10. So we're going to start with that one first of all, but I want to really go to chapter 6. If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Well, that is fairly frightening, isn't it? Because it says, if we sin willfully, 
I'll put my hand up and say, when I sin, it's willful. It's because I wanted to do it. I wanted to say it. I wanted to think it or whatever it is. It's willful sin. All sin is deliberate. And that verse seems to say, if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. That's it. You know, some people in church history would wait until their dying day, their deathbed, before they got baptised. Because they believe that if you, if you sinned after you become a Christian, based on that verse, then you were lost forever. You could not be forgiven. Now, we always need to read the context, don't we? Context is king. What is the setting of this book? It's written to Hebrews, to Jewish people, a community, in fact, who are making a transition from the old covenant into the new covenant. And many of them had come into Christ. Many of them had come to faith in Jesus. They were born again. They were God's children. Some of them were still making that transition, but they were having second thoughts, various reasons. One of the reasons is that at that particular time, if you were a Christian, you were strongly persecuted. If you were a Jew, you were not persecuted. But if you were a Christian, you were persecuted, even to the point of having all your possessions confiscated, taken from you. In fact, you know, the emperor would say, if you know a Christian, just go into their house and help yourself to anything that's theirs. Remember Robert Mugabe said something like that about the, the farms in Zimbabwe. He said to his people, if you, if you know a white settler, just go and help yourself to their farm. It's yours. And so this thing, these things happen, and that happened to Christians. So there was a high price to pay. And some of them were, were saying, I think we were better off as Jews. You know, we've got our sacrifices. We've got our temple. We've got our priesthood. But the writer of the Hebrews was saying, don't you understand? Those things were only types and shadows pointing forward to the substance, which is Jesus. Now he has come. There's no more sacrifices for sin. In fact, two years after this book was written, do you know what happened? The Romans marched on Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and destroyed the temple. And from that day to this day, the Jews have never offered sacrifices again because they can only offer them there at the temple. And so it's interesting, you ever talk to a Jew, say, Jim, what do you do about forgiveness of sins now, now that you can't offer sacrifices? But what the writer is saying here is this, Jesus has now been revealed to you. He's come, he's the sacrifice, he's the Lamb of God. If you reject him, the sin it's talking about there is rejecting Jesus. That's the only sin for which there is no forgiveness. Every other sin there is forgiveness. His blood covers every sin. But if you reject him, you've rejected your very forgiveness and your salvation. Amen. Now, if we sin willfully, if we commit that sin, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the enemies. Let's read on. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law, that's the old covenant, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if you had an apostate amongst the Jews and this person said, I don't believe in Yahweh anymore, I don't believe in the covenant, 
and two or three per people heard them say that, that's enough to put that person to death under the Jewish law. Now, anyone who did that under Moses' law, blah, 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 of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the blood, sorry, the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? Can you see the three witnesses there? Jesus has come, the Son of God. God became flesh and they've trampled him underfoot. The second witness is the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus himself, which God said this is the blood of the new covenant. And the third witness, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of grace, who brought testimony and witness to Jesus. The three witnesses. If you reject them, there's no more hope for anyone. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord would judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's clear the sin that is unforgivable is rejecting Jesus, rejecting your own salvation. Now we'll come to uh, chapter 6. For it is impossible, impossible, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So some people read that and they say, see that? It's impossible. If you fall away, you're lost forever. Now, who really believes that? If churches believe that, they should put a sign outside the door, all welcome, except for backsliders. You can go to hell. Because that's what that would say if that's the, the way it's being interpreted. Amen? It's impossible. Not only difficult, it's impossible for those who were once... He's talking about those who have heard the gospel, they've been enlightened, not regenerated, their eyes have been opened. They see that Jesus is the true and living way. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been in the meetings where, where Jesus has been presented. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit has manifested himself in their meetings. How? By tasting uh, the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. You know what that means? Healing. Because in the age to come, there'll be no sickness. When Jesus came and preached the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God is here. This is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He healed the sick. There'll be no sickness in the kingdom. Amen. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. But then after all that, if they fall away, if they reject Christ, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. They're basically saying, no, I believe that Jesus was an imposter. He should have been crucified and they've put him to an open shame. Now, that's the only sin that cannot be forgiven, rejecting Jesus. Let's read on. In this chapter it says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. You know, the salvation 
And there's things that accompany salvation. You believe in Jesus, you are saved. But do you know what? There's something that accompanies that. You say, what's that? Let's read on. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. God doesn't want you just to be saved. He wants you to know you are saved. He wants you to have full assurance of your salvation. Otherwise, what's the point of Jesus dying on the cross so that you can be forgiven, but you, you're still anguishing in, in condemnation and torment that maybe you're going to go to hell at the end? What's the point of Jesus dying to give you that kind of salvation? God wants you to have full assurance that you are saved. Amen? Now, if I have 99% assurance, if you say, are you sure you're saved? I would say 99%. You know what? The devil will come along with that 1% and say, yeah, this is where you're struggling, isn't it? And, and, and you have reason to struggle because I don't think you are saved. Isn't that right? And he'll play mind games with you and get you into condemnation and fear and so on. But God says, no, I want you to come to that place with full assurance of salvation. Salvation and things that accompany salvation. Now, what has God done that we might have this full assurance? Two things. This is what we're looking at this morning. Number one, God made a promise to Abraham. And that promise, number two, he confirmed it with an oath. We're going to look at that. Now, when God called Abraham, he began his program for worldwide redemption. He came to Abraham, he said, in you and in your seed, which is Jesus all the nations of the earth will be blessed, blessed with salvation. The gospel will go to all the nations of the world. Amen. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Just by believing the promise of Jesus, he was made righteous before God. That's God's way of salvation. Believe on Jesus Christ. Amen. And, and that applies to us. If you, if you want clarification of that, just read Romans 4 when you get home. Paul says, what happened to Abraham? He's the father of us all who believe. He's the prototype. And when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely... Now, whenever you read that word, surely, when God says surely, that's God taking an oath, okay? Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So God gave a promise, and then he confirmed it with an oath. Now, when, when you take an oath, you swear by something greater than yourself, something other than yourself. People want a guarantee. You, know, you say that, but how can we know? So we put a deposit on the line, and we put, you, somebody will go guarantor for us. You know, we swear by something greater. Uh, or or we, we agree to forfeit this sum of money if we don't follow through on, on our promises. You know what I'm saying? Now, in, in the Bible days, they would swear by maybe the altar of the temple. And then people saying, you know, I'm really, really truthful in what I'm saying. I swear by the altar. Or I swear by the high priest. Some would even say, I swear by God. As God lives, such and such and such. Now, God often did that, or God did that sometimes. As I live, says the Lord. 
He's swearing by himself, as I live. Actually, what that means is, if you look at the Greek, it's, it, it means God interposed himself. He put himself between the promise and us as the guarantor. And, and God gave himself as a hostage. Basically saying, if I don't follow through on this, may I cease to be God. Wow. You can't get anything more daring than that. Anything greater than that. That's what it's saying. God swore by himself. Let's move on. God made the oath not for himself. God didn't say, I'll do this just so that I make sure that I do follow through. Because, you know. No. He did it for us. He did it for us. For our good. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them what? An end of all dispute. That's why we're talking about eternal security. We're going to end the dispute here this morning. Amen? Will God finally reject us because of some sin in our life? Because of some failure? Because of some flaw? No. The oath ends that dispute. Now that word dispute is the word anti-logia. It's made up of two words, anti against logia. Logia is the word. So when God gives us a word, for example, when Jesus said, he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Okay, that's the word of God. That's the promise of God. The, the promise of the God who cannot lie. But if somebody comes along and disputes that, ah yes, but what about this? But what if you did this? And what if you didn't do that? That's anti-logia, that's going against the word, trying to contradict it, as you can see there. The, the um, uh, King James says it's the end of all strife. We shouldn't have to get into these arguments and debates about eternal security. In fact, I refuse to do so now, because I've settled it. It's not an issue for me anymore. People want to argue, well, don't wake me up. Go and talk to someone else, because I'm, I'm, I'm okay on this one, you know? Now, by these two things, the promise of God who cannot lie and the oath, we can be assured of our salvation. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to who? The heirs of promise. Guess who the heirs of promise are? Us. We are the heirs, the ones who inherit the promises given to Abraham. The immutability, that word means unchangeableness. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. So that which God promised and confirmed with an oath was not just for Abraham, but for the heirs of promise. That is, for us. Now, let's just go back this. Is God determining. God really wants us to have assurance. God determining to show to us the unchangeableness of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Now, God's counsel means his will. That which he intends to perform, that is his eternal purpose. God, God didn't just come to Abraham and say, oh, what a lovely man that is. I think, I think I'll call him and, and make a people out of him. No. He determined that according to the counsel of his will before the foundation of this world. Before this world was created. God had a will, a purpose. That's what that means. Now, Paul speaks about that. He speaks about that quite a lot, actually. 
But here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, having made known to us the mystery, now when you see that word mystery, it means that which previously was hidden, but now has been revealed. Okay, you go to see, um, uh, let's just say there's a painting there behind that curtain. Everybody's come to see this great painting and they're all waiting for someone to pull the cord and draw the curtain back. That's the meaning of the word mystery. That which was hidden, but has now been revealed. That was hidden in the counsel of God and we wouldn't know it unless God chose to reveal it to us. Okay, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So God determined right from the beginning that Jesus would be the center of it all. Everything would, would, would um, depend upon him and, and he would be the center of it all. That's why we are Christ-centered in this church, by the way. In him also, we, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. This was all in the, the counsel of God's will. God knew about you before the foundation of the earth. Amen. God knew that you would trust in him. And God knew that you would be one of his children. Now, the counsel of his will was not only to send Jesus to die for us, but that we would believe in him and be eternally secure. The counsel of God in this respect was revealed to Abraham in the form of promises. Okay? So God, let's just go back. By the way, did you have your coffee this morning? You've had your caffeine fix? That's good, because it's pretty, pretty heavy this morning. <laughs> pretty doctrinal, but it's good stuff. I hope you're enjoying it. I'm enjoying it anyway, that's the main thing, isn't it? Um, now, where were we? Till I interrupt, interrupted myself. The counsel of God in this respect was revealed to Abraham in the form of promises. So, so God had this eternal counsel concerning what he was going to do through Jesus and, and, and the benefits that would bring you into his kingdom, into his family, okay? God knew what he was going to do. When did we know when he made promises, he said, this is what I'm going to do. See, that wasn't an impulsive thing that he just said to Abraham there and there. That was a part of his eternal counsel. So then God revealed it through promises. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Now, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, this is an important point, so try to stay with me, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So God came to Abraham with a promise, right? 430 years later, there was another covenant, that we call it the Mosaic covenant, which is full of laws and conditions. If you do this, God will do that. If you uh, are obedient here, God will protect you, blah, blah, blah. Okay, they're conditional promises, law. But Paul, making it, Paul is making it very clear. 
The promise that God made to Abraham was unconditional. Be very clear about that, because where a lot of Christians start getting into this doing deals with God. If God, if I do this, will you do that? God's promises of grace. It's all what he's going to do. That's what he promised Abraham. So the, pro the law, that had another purpose. It didn't make the promise a, now a conditional promise. Okay? The promise is unconditional. It cannot be changed, modified, or cancelled by the law. Then the unconditional promise was confirmed by an oath. Now this is um, Gabriel talking to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Have I got that right? Okay. About the role that he would play in preparing for Jesus. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So it's unconditional and it cannot be cancelled. So the counsel of his will was made known only to him until he promised. But what if we didn't believe the promises were unconditional? He confirmed it with an oath. You see, this is what some people do with salvation. They turn salvation into a conditional promise. It's not a conditional promise. It's a promise that rests with God. It's solely the work of God, what he will do in saving his people. And he confirmed it with an oath, not for his sake, but for our sake, so that we will know he will never go back on it because he's interposed himself. He's put himself on the line. He's basically said, may I cease to be God if I let any one of you go. Isn't that beautiful? This ends all dispute. God also, and we're going to go a little bit deeper, I really do hope you've had that coffee this morning. God also made promises and an oath concerning the certainty of our salvation before Abraham and even before creation to his son. Look at this. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Who did he promise? Well, you remember, if you're listening to Phil last week, God is a trinity. Three persons. One God, three, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father promised the Son. You can read about that, by the way, in Isaiah. He made a covenant with the Son. You know, God has never made a covenant with you or me. God made a covenant with Jesus, and you are, and I are in Christ. So we are the beneficiaries of that covenant. We receive all the promises and the blessings that God made to Jesus. Okay, so in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. Then he also confirmed it with an oath to Jesus. Psalm 110 verse 4, written a thousand years before Jesus was born on earth. But of course he existed as the eternal word, the son of God. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of of Melchizedek. Now, I may be wrong in this, but I think this is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. You are a priest, he's sworn, God has sworn to his son Jesus, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now remember, a priest represents the people. 
So God doesn't actually deal with you or me. He deals with us through our representative. The priest would go in on behalf of the people. You know, the, 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 the people might bring their, their offering and give it to the priest. They could not go in. And the moment they handed that offering over, the focus was no longer on the Israelite. It was on the priest and on the lamb that was offered. And Jesus is our high priest forever, representing us. God is always looking to Jesus, never looking to us. Only looking to Jesus, and therefore those who are in Christ are blessed because of Jesus. So God made a promise to Jesus, our high priest, and confirmed it by an oath. And he made a promise to Abraham and to us, the heirs of promise, and confirmed it with an oath. That by two immutable, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This is why God did it, so that we today might not be in doubt or condemnation or fear, but might have strong consolation as we go out of this place. Full assurance of faith. By these two immutable things, we have strong consolation. This consolation settles all dispute. Within, that's the struggle that goes on inside our own mind, you know, the conscience and so on. And without, people that come and argue, you can lose your salvation, what about this, what about that? No, it settles all that dispute. It lays the thing to rest completely because the promise and the oath are immutable. This strong consolation and hope is for all who have fled for refuge to Jesus. Now, the Old Testament um, uh, people, the Jews, the Hebrews, who this was written to, would know immediately what the writer had in mind. In the Old Testament, uh, there were cities of refuge. Some of you are aware of the cities of refuge. There were six cities of refuge. They were for a specific purpose. Let's just say, for example, uh, two men are out working, maybe chopping trees down. One of them, the axe head accidentally comes off and hits his friend in the head, kills him. He's dead. Now, that's got to go to court. That's got to be tried to, 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 you know, to substantiate that that was an accident. But in our society, the police would come and arrest us and take us away for questioning, maybe even hold us in custody until the trial. In those days, there was, in Israel, there was no police force. There's no police force. So what happened is a relative of the man who was killed, he would take it upon himself to go and find the man that did that. And, and, and uh, he was called the manslayer because if he found him, he would kill him. He was not rational. He was emotional. He just, that person that just had a relative killed. And so they would feel like they, they were honor bound to, to take retribution and kill the person that killed them. Whether it was by accident or not, he would not wait around for a trial. So what that man could do was run to one of these cities of refuge. And once he got inside the cities of refuge, he was safe. No one could touch him. That was his security. He was safe and he could stay there until the high priest died. He was safe. He was secure. Now that's a picture of salvation, isn't it? I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. 
when you trust in Jesus, you're running into your city of refuge. No one can touch you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That's the picture of this man running to the city of refuge. In the Old Testament, the cities of refuge protected only those people who were innocent of deliberate murder. Some sins found no mercy under the law. Okay, there's nowhere you could go to with certain sins. If you did that deliberately, you would be put to death. This is different under grace. By him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses. That's grace. Where sin abounds, his grace abounds much more. Jesus saves to the animals. You, you'll read that statement, and that's the meaning of it in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 7. He saves to the uttermost. doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus can save you and forgive you. There is no sin you can commit that he will never be able to forgive. Where, where sin abounds, his grace abounds much more. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Praise God. Now, these cities of refuge, just quickly go through these, just, just to see the heart of God in wanting to provide safety and salvation for this you know, person that accidentally killed his fellow man. God wanted people to find and access the city of refuge easily. If you look at a map of Israel, you'll see that they were all centrally placed throughout the land. They weren't in some remote corner. People could access them quickly and easily. He commanded that the nation build highways, not just footpaths to them. You know, can you tell me where the city of refuge is? Oh, there's a path there. Go, just make sure you don't wander off. No, no, they were highways. Highways. Straight into the city of refuge. God wanted people to find them. In fact, if you look at extra biblical uh, uh, material, you'll find that there were strict laws about how those highways had to be maintained and kept free from rubble and so on, so that people could get there quickly. Bridges were built across every ravine that the highways came to. So, for example, if, if there was a ravine and, and the city was the other side, they wouldn't wait for him to go down and come up the other side because that's losing time. They'd have to build a bridge across so that he could just quickly get across into the city. God wanted them to make it there. Directions had to be clear. I think the word is uh, miklak. Refuge. So there were, there were signposts, refuge, 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 so that it was very clear. They didn't lose their way. And the signposts were uh, carefully preserved. Runners were even stationed to guide the fugitives there. There were runners. You know, so maybe they'd see this man running, weary because he'd been running for a while. You go into the city of refuge, come with me. And he'd run with him into the city, take him into the city. They were prominent and easily seen. Most of them were, were elevated, like cities on a hill that could be seen at night, all lit up, so that even if they were travelling at night, they, they knew where they were. The gates were never closed. And once in the city, the fugitive was safe until the death of the high priest. Our high priest is alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. God has saved us. You know, Friends, whether people have got this full assurance of 
faith or not, this strong consolation, they're saved anyway. They're just as saved as you and I. But it makes life so much easier, doesn't it? Some people are not going to hell, but they live hell on earth because they're anxious, they're afraid, they're worried, they're condemned. God wants us to have strong consolation. Nothing can change the fact that he saves us, but he has given us a full assurance of hope that he wants us to lay hold on. Okay, finishing up. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. That's what it's for. It's for our soul while we're living here on earth that we might have peace in our hearts, that there might be no fear in our minds, no anxiety. It's an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this hope is an anchor for our soul. In times of a storm, a ship is held by an anchor which is cast into the unseen depths below. This keeps the ship from drifting, from being tossed about and thrown all over the place. Amen? Our anchor of hope, the certain expectation of good, has not passed downward, but upward into heaven itself. So the writer is mixing metaphors here, as sometimes they did. Okay, we've got this anchor that's not gone down, but it's gone up into heaven to the very throne of God. And who's on the throne? God is on the throne, the one who promised, the one who confirmed that promise with an oath. And Jesus, our high priest, who represents us on his right hand. Amen. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And if Satan comes to you and condemns you, say, don't talk to me, go and talk to my high priest. He's representing me. He is the one representing us and he's able to save to the uttermost. Okay, last slide. The Levitical priesthood only entered the Holy of Holies as a representative. Only once a day. Oh, sorry, once a year, one day a year. The Day of Atonement. They went in and then they come out until the following year. Jesus has not only gone in and not come out, but he's gone in as our forerunner. This word implies a sequence because he's there, we too will be there, we will follow. He's gone ahead of us. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself. We have God's promise and his oath. Now for me, that settles the dispute. That's why I'm not interested in clever arguments or people that just want to, you know, kind of try to dispute, contradict. It's very clear, God has made a promise. He that comes to me, I will in no ways cast out. And he's confirmed it with an oath. He's interposed himself. May I cease to be God if I do not fulfill my promises to you. The end of all dispute. Let's pray. Praise God. As we pray this morning, and I know this is going out uh, live, but also it will go out on YouTube. If there's anyone listening who has never fled to Jesus from the wrath to come, fled to Jesus for salvation, your city of refuge, if you've never done that, you can do that right now. 
just by saying in your heart, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my saviour. I believe you died for me. In doing that, you are running to Jesus. You are safe. You are safe. You are secure for eternity. And for those of us who, who do know the Lord, God wants us to have strong consolation, full assurance of faith, knowing that he's promised and he's confirmed it with an oath, these two unchangeable things. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. You want us not only to be saved, you want us to know we're saved for eternity. You want us to enjoy relationship with you, fellowship with you, love from you as our loving Heavenly Father. And this morning we consent to being loved. We consent to believing in what your word says. We will not call you a liar, Lord. We will believe in your word and trust you and rest in the finished work of Jesus. And we give you thanks and praise. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.